Hey everybody, this is Nick Padiak. You're listening to I'll Be Damned. Uh, this episode is, and, and the next two, it's a three-parter. Uh, I'm, I'm particularly excited to, to share with you. This is my conversation with Walter Guzzi. Uh, he is my sister-in-law's grandfather, so my, my brother's wife's grandfather. Uh, he's a, a remarkable man, recently celebrated his 100th birthday uh, earlier this year in 2016. Um, World War II veteran, uh, teller of, of many stories, obviously lived for 100 years. You, you can, you've got a lot of stories. Uh, re- recently, one of, the, one of the cool experiences of my life uh, was that I went to a, a White Sox game here in Chicago, went to Comiskey Park, and and uh, Wally was brought out onto the field as the, the hero of the game. Uh, he's, he's been a big White Sox fan all his life. We, we talk about that in, later in the, in the conversation, but brought him out onto the field, um, listed off his accomplishments, uh, many of which you will hear about in this, in this uh, conversation, uh, not not least of which is living to 100 years old, and it was it was a it was a really inspiring moment, uh, surrounded by thousands and thousands of people who were were just standing and, and cheering him on as as the PA announcer was listing all of all of his accomplishments, everything that he's done in his life, and just to hear the, the crowd uh, roaring and on their feet, everybody clapping. It was uh, it was a very emotional moment. It was it was really inspiring, uh, and a, as was my uh my conversation with him he i i sat down with wally at um at his daughter's house uh daughter and son-in-law's house and um we we had two long conversations over over a period of of a couple of nights um and and you'll hear that that he just uh opened up uh opened up and and talked to me for a very long time and uh, i've i've edited them down edited them together uh to be about three and a half hours so so you've got that to look forward to so uh strap in this is the first of three installments um and it was it was truly one of the one of the privileges and, and honors of my life to sit and talk with with Wally Guzzi uh i i hope you enjoy listening to it as as much as i did um, thanks, as always, to Matt Pickett for the I'll Be Damned theme song and to Alex Johnson for the, the cover art. So uh, here it is. Enjoy the first part of my talk with Walter Guzzi. Start. Well, why don't you start wherever you want. Uh, you were telling me about high school. Where, where did you grow up? Oh, I went to Liminal High School for, for three years. And where was that? And that was over at 62nd and Damon. Gotcha. And uh, the fourth year, the re- I transferred to a middle school. That It was a middle school. That, and I didn't have to take any uh, streetcar or any transportation, but I could walk to to, to school. Yeah. And uh, so this middle school was made into a high school. So then I transferred from Lindblom and over to this uh, school. They they called it. They named it uh, Kelly High School. Mm. So I finished my 
senior year at this school, which was only about six short blocks away from where I lived. And that's the reason why I made the change. Well, that's great. So yeah. before that, when you were going to the other school, you had to take a, a train car, a streetcar? I, I had to uh, take a train, yeah, yeah, take a uh, streetcar. Yeah. And uh, I hated that because most of the time I used to, you know, Bob ride. Oh, you would you would hitchhike? Hitchhike. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sure. So, what about before that? Did you you grew up grew up around that area? Oh no. Well, if you want me to start from the start. Sure. Okay. I was born, and uh, on May fifth, nineteen sixteen, and uh, my first few years. Up, up until the, uh, the age of six, we lived in a tri-level brick home, which had two cold water, what we called it at that time, cold water flats, which was four rooms and uh, no hot water or anything like that, and uh, and. There, there were two, two families living on the, on the, on a, on, at, at each level, and uh, in the middle was this toilet. So if you had to go to the toilet, you had to exit the uh, your cold water flat, so to speak, or apartment, and walk in an outer corridor like that and uh, walked to the toilet because it was it service for the two families, you know. Yeah. One, uh, one on the other side and we were on our side. So if there was anybody, uh, the other family was, you know, occupying or something, so you just stood around there, waited until it was uh, vacated. So, <laughs> so we... Uh, that way we lived that way for for quite some time, until the age of uh, oh yeah, and then uh, well, for entertainment uh, I used to take a walk to Morgan Street, which was just a oh, a couple of blocks east of where I lived, and then on one side of the street they had a just a. A few retail shops, like there was a photo studio, and and then there was a uh, a shoe store, and a dry goods store, and a big butcher shop, so to speak, and uh, and at the very tail end, there was an open front blacksmith shop. Oh wow! So. Naturally, I spent an awful lot of time watching this blacksmith, uh, you know, shoeing the horses and stuff like that, yeah. which was pretty interesting. And uh, every day I used to see the the peddlers that peddled the uh, oh, vegetables to the to to, to the people. And uh, they used to unhook their horses, 
then one at a time they walked the horse over to the uh, blacksmith shop and then he would fit, fit, gave him a new pair of shoes, you know, so yeah. to speak, but they were our horseshoes. Yeah. And, uh, and then they had, after the, the, the horse was, he had his new shoes, the, the peddler would walk the horse back to where he unhitched it from, from, from his wagon, which was just a, an old, old piece of piece of junk sometimes, you know, <laughs> you know because they were all Jewish peddlers anyway, you know. So then the horse, after the horse was shooting, he put him back, you know, hooked him up to his wagon, and then he'd drive over to, which wasn't too far away, it was the was a uh, farmer market outlet where trains used to deposit their cars from the west coast with the vegetables and stuff like that. And uh, then the peddler would pick up his couple of boxes of oranges that he was going to sell or apples or stuff like that, which he was going to sell in uh, after he got his couple of boxes or so, like that, then he'd go to, uh, to the neighborhood and just, you know, kept yelling apples if he was selling apples. And, and uh, the mothers with, with their little baskets used to, when they heard him, they used to take their little basket and go to him and bought maybe a couple of pounds of apples or a half a dozen oranges, whatever. And uh, after after that, why well, uh, the peddler would then just keep going down the street and just kept yelling, you know, what he was selling. It. So so that was the way, the way they the mothers used to buy their vegetables and also their uh, because it was a hell of a lot cheaper than going to the local. Butcher, butcher, grocery shop. So that's the way they. My my mother always did, you know. Mm. Plus all the other uh, mothers. And then, uh, when I was around six, about six or eight years old, uh, there were no there were no bathrooms in the house. Forget that. <laughs> and. Uh, so the only way that you were able to uh, take a shower was to go to the local field house at a, at a local uh, park. Mm. And there they had shower heads on the inside of the field house for whenever you want to take a shower, you, you could take a shower. And uh, So I, with my two older brothers, who was one was two years older than I was, and the other one was four year older than I. And uh, so I used to go with them on a Saturday. And as you entered the field house, there was a, an attendant which will hand you a little bar of soap like they do in the hotel sometimes, huh. but much smaller. A little bar of soap. and. Uh, give you a, a key 
to a lacquer. And you'd warm it with your little bar of soap and, and go to the locker room, take your clothes off and put it in a locker and, and close it. And then the key to the locker was on a uh, ribbon that you could slip over your head. Mm. So you slip that after you close your lockers, you put it around, you know, the, the key with the ribbon over your head and you went to the to the shower head where all you did was just pull pull a string and the, you get some nice hot water and that was the way that we took our Saturday afternoon baths, so to speak. <laughs> so how many siblings did you have? Well, I had two old, there was in the family at that time there was about, well, you could see there was uh, seven of us and uh, did those that were younger than I, like I was six when I started going to the bathroom. When you were younger than that, you, uh, the mother used to take a real big tub, a round tub, you know, mm -hmm. heat some water up, and that was your bathroom. <clears throat> She scrubs you down and one at a time. We do two. Okay, here's a towel. Go, <laughs> and, that, and that's the way. That's the way we lived. It, you know, yeah. Yeah. that was that was the way uh, uh, you learn how to also do a lot of things for yourself. But after uh, when I was in, at the age of. Uh, I, we moved, moved from one place to another for a couple times, but finally yeah, my father and uh, my mother saved enough money to buy a home from Bridgeport to a, town, to a community that was about two and a half miles southwest of where we lived called Brighton Park, and my father bought a, a little home over there, and that's where we start going to different schools, you know, like mm -hmm. Five Holy Mars was our parish, so so naturally my mother enrolled us at this uh, parish school, and, uh, and then when, after, at the age, I graduated in uh, in June of 1930. My grammar school. I was 14 years old at the time. So I graduated from Kelly High School in 1934. So after I graduated, I was 18 years old. The heart of the depression. Mm. No jobs, nothing. Even though the older, my oldest brothers were, were uh, not working either. You know, so there was just there was just no job. That's all. Period. So most of the time that was spent at after after grammar school was with the guys in the neighborhood. Well, we scrounge around and get a lot of money for a ball and then go out and uh, 
and you know, play baseball. The same thing it would be with uh, hardball too. We used to go out to the uh, neighboring park called McKinley Park. We used to go there, and, uh, and that's how we spent all our t time that we had on our hands. Because there was no job or anything to get up to where you could go and <laughs> and try to make a few bucks. So that I'm, at the age of 18, 18, I found out what girls were made of, you know. <laughs> so they were nice and soft and plushy and all of that. <laughs> did your did your father still have a job? Yeah, my father worked all the time. Okay. Thank and God for that. What yeah. What did he do? He was a soap maker. Oh. And uh, he worked all during the Depression for that. Yeah. And then towards... towards in the little later years, uh, in like 1934 or 35, my mother got a job as a night stenographer. Mm -hmm. You know what that was? Mm -hmm. The lady, the, the cleaning ladies that cleaned the offices after uh, the uh, wor working hours. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, it was, and, and the older boys like myself and my older two brothers, we, we, my mother worked there from four to about 12 o'clock. And then we, one of us would, at 12, 12 o'clock, would go to the streetcar line and we'd sit down and wait until my mother come come home at, at maybe Ten or fifteen minutes because it was all timed and everything, yeah. and waiting, and then we'd, we'd walk her home, and that's uh, that's how my e my evening hours were spent, you know. So so that went on for, and of course, at, this was at a time when there was a lot of dancing going around. So at the age of eighteen, like I said, I found out what. Big girls were made of, you know. So we, I start going to dancing, and of course, you know, at, at that time I didn't know my left from my right. You know, trying to dance and then trying to get a dance with a girl, and, and, and you know, you, you didn't know how to dance. Get away! But, <laughs> don't bother me. You know? <laughs> so I learned how to dance at the little local dance. Halls that they had at, in the neighborhood, because the big dance hall was St. Agnes Ballroom. That was where the so-called the elite men met to eat, uh, not to eat, but to, to, to greet or whatever. You know, you you graduated from uh, the local ba uh, dance halls after you learn how to dance. You went to, you were you went to St. Agnes Ballroom then. And if you, if they, if girls used to know, if the girls knew that you knew how to dance, they dance with you. Otherwise, they, they'd rather stand not that not to dance with if they know that you didn't know how to dance. So it was a requisite that you danced at this yeah. place. So and, did you get good at dancing? Oh yeah, <laughs> I say I graduated, you know. So I, I knew how to dance, and then all I did was stand at that. 
they, they, used, they used to charge a quarter to get in the dance hall. And there was a six-piece six orchestra that played, the, you know, for the dancing. So all I did was the girls used to stand on one side <laughs> and the guys were on the other side of the ballroom, you know. But if, if, if you knew how to dance, as these girls that were dancing would pass by and you knew they had to dance, all you did was say one. She had that dance open, she'd say, okay, three, yeah, yeah, okay. And then you fill out your so-called card, you know. I think there was 11 or 12 dances, I don't know. And so then you were set for the whole evening, you know, and you dance with these girls. A couple times you you dance with the same one, especially if you, you figure that, well, I guess maybe I'll take this one home, you know, so. <laughs> so so that's how that's how we spent our evenings, you know, on Sunday, Saturday, you know, not Saturday night, Sunday evenings, but Saturday nights were, the ballroom was reserved for special dances where clubs used to, uh, you know, run their dances there, you know, club, I mean, a sports club, something. Like one of the, one of the clubs that I belonged to was, it was. The Mozart Tigers, because it was a baseball team, and uh, and also they had a club in the basement where we used to do, meet, you know, and, and if there was beer available, we had beer, but if there wasn't, you, you just sat around and you, know, you did very little, because uh, if you didn't have any money, you can't, you can't go go with girls, you know, take them out or anything like that. Yeah. So it wasn't until 1930, this verse, from 1934, to, from 1934 to 1936, there are two miserable years, you know. Here you are, you're 18 years old and you don't have a job and no money, so... <clears throat> It wasn't until 1936 that I got a job at Sears Roebuck working on a, uh, on a being a helper on a, on a delivery truck who used to deliver all the appliances, including uh, small refrigerators and, and gas ranges and stuff like that. So I, I was working for a couple of years over there. And, uh, and in 1936, let's see, I got a job at Marshall Field and Company. I got a job working in their uh, so-called uh, parcel post division where packages would come down the chute to to uh, typists that would type out labels, and uh, and then we they would throw around that after they typed out a label to the package they throw it on a conveyor and there was and those guys who would take it off and and zone it and throw it in different market 
uh, mark, mark the package with own, and at the end, there were a guy that took the, took the package, like his own two was uh, close by, his own four was uh, all the way out on the west coast or something like that. So I was at that uh, at that job until oh nineteen nineteen thirty eight I think yeah it was good while it lasted you know and it, I, had, I had money uh, had money in my pocket my I'd give my mother uh, the paycheck and. And whatever she could afford at that time, she gave me maybe five bucks out of that paycheck, and that was it. What the hell, the paycheck was only fourteen dollars a week or something like that, you know. So that's better than no I, money at all. No money at all. Yeah. That's right. And you didn't have much to take a girl out. I met my wife in nineteen thirty-six. How did you meet her? Dance hall. Did you, uh, were you on her dance card? Hmm? Were you on her dance card? No. No? Not right away. I had to find out if she could dance. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was in, she worked where my brother worked, in the soap factory where my father was a soap baker, and then my two older brothers were working there. And uh, because they got a job in 1936, 1934 or something like that, they able to get you. My dad got him a job there. And so uh, I, happened, I happened to be at the, at the dance that, uh, that Sunday, and my brother Steve, a little older than me, he uh, said, hey, hey, Lefty, he said, I want you to meet a be a gal that works at works at the same place, so he introduced me to my future wife. That's what he did. So out of courtesy to him and to her, you know, I asked her for a dance because I just didn't want to be a bummer, just walk away saying, hey, "Nice knowing you, babe." You know. <laughs> you know. So I asked her for a dance, and she said, "Sure, okay." So the following Sunday, she was there again with her girlfriend, and so I asked her for that dance number two or three, I don't know. And after I danced with her the first dance, the first dance that night, I said, "Anybody taking you home?" And she says, "No." I said, I said, I said, would you mind if I walked you home? Yeah. She says, no, I, I, I'd like that too. Okay. So that was the start of a beautiful friendship. Yeah. And so we start going to more or less like at that time, steady, you know. And uh, as, like I say, I started to walk her home after. I got to know her real well, and and from that wedding bells in 1940. Wow! <laughs> so it was 1938 is when we became 
later part of 1938, we got, we became engaged and, uh, and then we got married in 1940. Yeah. Then at that time, the guys were starting to already shooting at, shooting at each other and, uh, in Europe and elsewhere, you know, so I figured, well, I know where I know I'm. I'm going to get drafted sooner or later, because then in 1940 they instituted the uh, drafting. you you were assigned a number, and if that number came up, uh, you knew what that your number was. So my number was something in the 300s or something. So I said, well. Maybe I'll, you know, hang around a little bit before they get a hold of me. So it wasn't until the November of 1943 that, uh, well, of course, in 1940, my wife and I got married, and uh, and then and, and, and in 1943, I finally got the. The familiar, I want you telegram, you know. Mm. It always said on there, I want you. Thank you very much, but I don't want you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's 1943 that uh, we all assembled at the draft board and uh, got and then take, taking my, on a bus uh, and. Uh, Downtown to Army headquarters, and who were sworn in as you know soldiers, and given two weeks furlough, so to speak, and to get your affairs in order. But my wife and I, we didn't. Uh, when we got married, we didn't move away or anything. We, I figured. I'm going to get drafted sooner or later, so we decided to stay with them because their her mother owned a two flat, two six room flat building, and uh, there was plenty of room for you know for us to to live there for for a while, and of course she had two brothers too. That there are only two brothers, and so. We got married and we stayed with that. I figured we figured we might, I might as well. We we lived there and not go out on our own and then you'd have to break up housekeeping and all that. So we lived with that with us, her father and mother, and uh, until the, in the meantime I saw my uh, brother number two get drafted. Brother number four one after me get drafted and I'm still hanging around. So finally in 1943, in this November, I got the call to go. So went downtown, got got all dry, I mean, uh, uh, sworn in and everything. And, and after after a couple of weeks, we were, they gave us a couple of weeks. I don't know if I'm re repeating myself, but I remember a couple of weeks. 
yet after that, and uh, we assembled at the draft board again, and they about took us to Camp Grant, a uh, army camp where they put outfitted you with all the army clothes and everything. Where was that? Camp Grant was uh, somewhere in Rockford, hmm. Illinois. And after uh, after that, uh, I uh, after after two weeks after uh, after I got inducted, so to speak, in 1943. You know, like I said, in November, I finally uh, was in the service, and they shipped. Me too, and me a whole bunch of other guys, you know. After they outfitted us with all the army clothes, and and then what it was 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 a makeshift op op operation, because they they built little huts because this training was done in the panhandle of of, uh, of Florida. You know where the panhandle is, mm -hmm. don't you? Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's really cold during the winter time. It's because what we had in this, each, each uh, hut kept what, 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 what was called in the Army a squad. And that consists of 15, 15 GIs, you know. So, and then in the center of this, uh, we call them huts. There was a potbelly stove right in the middle to which the chimney went up, you know, through the roof then. And then during the cold, cold winter mornings, you know, the, the reveille would go, you know, giving you the old, uh, the old blown or whistle. And uh, everybody's looking. At one another, you know, who's going to get up to stoke that fire and get that <laughs> thing going so it'll be nice and warm, you know. <laughs> so uh, went through that uh, that training, and uh, after my two week after the training period, my two two week furlough, saying goodbye to my wife and all the other relatives that I made around in during, during those two weeks. Was that difficult? Oh, definitely. You know, those are all your, your, your like your aunts, your godmothers, and all those, you know, all those, those type of people. And of course, the worst was, you, you know, your own wife. Yeah. And it was the most difficult, you know, to leave them because you knew that, you know, you don't know if you're going <coughs> to come back or not. Because what the heck, you know, war is war, there ain't no question about it, you know. Yeah. So, after I had my two weeks furlough, I came back to our base, what, what we called our base camp, and they shipped us uh, from there, they, they went to they shipped us to Fort Meade, Maryland, 
which was just outside of uh, Washington, D.C. And there was a, a sort of like a midpoint where they would send troops where needed. As new troops keep, keep coming in, they, would, they were shipping troops to the African, African, North African theater at that time was going in full swing. So a lot of guys went over there, and, and I, in the meantime, was, when I reached that point, they shipped me to a camp just outside of uh, Boston, Massachusetts, in a little town called Taunton, and there we bivouacked, set up our tents, and it was a two-man tent. So. I got my first day, first time laying on the ground, you know, and uh, so there we stayed there, I don't know. But uh, before, while we were there, they, on a Saturday, they always gave us passes to go to town or wherever you want to go, you know. Saturday was your, was your time. So, I and two other guys always used to take our pass and go to, to hop on the Long Island train and go to the New York City to the USO. And uh, there they would give you all kind of passes there. Oh, I saw the Rockets and uh, at Carnegie Hall. And uh, I remember they gave us a pass to a cabaret we have dancing girls and everything, you know. Three of us, and those three, I and two other guys that we paled around. So we got a pastor that, that they call Leon and Eddie's Cabaret. And we had a wonderful time there because we had a nice big dinner and uh, drinks, whatever we wanted, you know, we got the drinks. Everything was free. And even the girls were free. They came over and sat with us, uh, the, the dancing girls, you know. So it was fun while it lasted. They camped at where I was, training, was what they called a combat infantry camp where they taught you all the combat ways and also You knew that after the, uh, let's say, I went in 1943, November, and, and I, I graduated from that camp in 1944 in April. So the thought is, where the hell are they going to ship me next, you know? So when you were training, what what was your specialty? Oh, yeah. Well, first you're, uh, you're a rifleman. Mm -hmm. or, or first you're a, first you're, you're a rifleman. And, uh, and from there, you know, while you're, while you're uh, doing your basic training, you, you're uh, 
trained first as riflemen and then as the uh, machine gunner, as a 80 millimeter, uh, 80 millimeter uh, mortar, and and a tank unit. Those are the four units that are that compromise a a uh, combat infantry division. And uh, so uh, during basic training, I must have excelled with the machine gun. And of course, the machine gun was in two parts. One, it, you had the gun, and then you had the tripod on which the gun was mounted on the tripod, and then you could start firing. And then the rest of the squad was consisted of, uh, oh yeah, six ammo carriers. Each, each uh, GI carried two ammo cans, two cans of ammunition. So that compromised the machine gun squad. And of course, during a, they'd spread out. If you, if you, once you mounted your gun, and ready for firing, well, then the these infantry guys that were carrying the ammo, they spread out, and uh, and they were your your guardians more or less, you know. So uh, every day after what we call revelry, at the end of the day, we would all farm. I mean, walking. Uh, formation, you know, around the perimeter of the uh, of the camp, and the colonel who was in, in charge of the training there would beller out over the light, the microphone system, telling us that we are combat soldiers. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, uh, and then we were. Bivouacked after that, and of course I was telling you that we had to pass this front set, and it was until oh, April, that in the middle of the night we they said, "Okay, we're, we're moving." So you packed all your stuff and everything, and we and we. Uh, boarded a troop ship. Did you know where you were going? Well, I know we were going to the U.S. Uh, to uh, the ETO, what we called the European Theater of Operation. They were going there because they wouldn't keep us, you know, at, in that part of town. If we were going elsewhere, it would have been Afro, Af Af African Theater. So... Uh, so we, there was a troop ship that was ready for us, one one particular day, and we we uh, packed up our gears, uh, gear and everything, and and just before uh, while I was we were still at this uh, Boston camp yet, I told my wife if she would get me send me a salami. You know, because I know I wasn't going to eat that kidney stew that these that these English ship had. That's about <laughs> a, it fed you, you know. So she sent me this, this salami, and that was a godsend, believe me. 
<laughs> I didn't have to eat that crap, you know. <laughs> you know? So I had well, I and my two friends. That's what we ate during the uh, during the, uh, the trip across the ocean. That that took five days. We we didn't have any escort. When we set sail, it was in the dead of night, and uh, and what the ship had, you know, just zigzag back and forth, back and forth, and it took us five days to get across that ocean, and we were by ourselves. We weren't, we weren't, uh, we didn't have any warships to protect us, but just because of the speed of the ship and the zigzag course that the captain took got us safely across where we may where we landed in Glasgow, Scotland, right at the tip of Scotland, and uh, unloaded there and they immediately put us on trains and uh, took us went down the went south on train, trains down to a town called Birmingham, England. And there they unloaded us, and then we were more or less in the holding position until such time that we were going to be uh, used because we were what they call replacement and combat infantry troops, 5,000 of us. The, the, the invasion didn't take, take place yet when we landed at this... Birmingham, so we were just in a holding position, and and then they invaded uh, Europe. And about two weeks after the invasion, and they had a good foothold, or then they shipped us over to France, at Omaha Beach, and it's there that we. Uh, more or less, we <clears throat> bivouacked, bivouacked there because uh, the fighting was still going on, just in a mile away from us. With and they're what we call what the hell do you call those hedgerows? Each farmer had a attractive land. That was surrounded with hedgerows, you know. There were bushes, real thick bushes. And it was usually, uh, oh, maybe about a, a hundred foot square. And that was this place to farm. So they had this all, all, all over the Omaha Beach, you could say. So uh, while the, the guys that were already before us, they were already in the fire, fighting the Germans and pushing them back little by little. And uh, finally they uh, routed them and they pushed, pushed the Germans, Germans all the way back to, to oh, you, well, you could almost say to Germany. Uh, but we didn't do any of the fighting, you know, going there. Uh, they uh, they were saving us, you know. So 
it was uh, after the uh, after the invasion, and we said it's we're bivouacked in Momom Beach for oh let's <coughs> say maybe two three weeks before the we had to make our move, uh, and uh, by that time. The American troops had already chased the Germans all the way back to almost their German, German, French German border, and that's when they moved us from Omaha Beach and and put put us on trucks and and uh, drove us all the way to a town called I still remember that town, Thienville, and uh, and. When we went there, we, we were all there. Before we left Omaha Beach, we all got our ammo, which is military occupation. My ammo was heavy machine gun, machine gunner. I was assigned to the 90th Infantry Division as a machine gunner, one of the machine gunners, because they they have four, four squads and. So you need four machine gunners. You have a, 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 a company has uh, I don't know 20, 20, 20 15 uh, man squads, which all require a machine gunners. So there was a hell of a lot of us. So, yeah. but I never thought at the time that I got to be a machine gunner, they they, they signed me to this 90th Infantry. This being a machine gunner ain't a very good, very good IMO because you know who the hell they want to knock out the first thing. Machine gunner. Mm -hmm. They they knock you out and they then they got a good chance of uh, of you know uh, advancing forward. But as long as you got that machine gunner and you're just going like this with it, anybody that's coming towards you. You're, you're going to get them one way or another. Mm -hmm. So I never realized that being one is pretty hazardous, come to think about it, you know. So they dis distributed us guys, you know, all over uh, to divisions that needed men that lost men during the invasion. And all they did was just distribute us guys. This guy. Was a good soldier. He was a rifleman. This guy here was a good, good machine gunner. He, he, uh, he went to certain divisions, you know, because they can they can only take so many division men, but a heck of a lot of riflemen. That's for sure. So they, well, the two the two friends that I had, they went to one division. Another one went to another division, and we were all. Had the same ammo, ammo, military occupation, being machine gunners. So they don't need three machine gunners in a in a squad or anything like that. They just need one. So that's the way they think. They split us all up, and and I didn't see any of those guys until after the war. Mm -hmm. Luckily, I did see uh, one, one, two of them. And uh, the other guy didn't. I, I, I never, you know, showed up. So, but, but, 
you, you go through, through the war <laughs> and you just hope to God that, you know, you get through it. And uh, so I ended up at Theonville where the 90th Infantry Division was held up because of the supplies. They moved so fast, chasing the Germans out of France, that they uh, they had to stop and let our supply line, you know, catch up with them, because uh, a, a division uses an awful lot of gas and stuff like that. So it was in Thermal that I finally had. Uh, some place to go, which, which we call home, you know. That it was in Thinville that we stopped, and then, then I was indoctrinated with <laughs> artillery shells. That I found found out what they a, uh, what they sounded like, you know. So I got accustomed to the Germans, which were only maybe a, a half a mile or a mile away from us. And uh, we just, when you heard the, the old whiz going by, you just ducked your head a little bit, waiting for the, where, where it's going to land. And usually they pattered when they, uh, the artillery guys would pattern the first they drop one ahead of you, because they had spotters and everything, you know. They'd place one in front of you, and then they place one in back of you, and then, and then right about then you know, whoa, this is going to hit you right in the center. And sure enough, you did because that that third shot, everybody scattered and uh, went into the foxhole because we had no buildings to go into. Especially, uh, we couldn't go in a town or anything like that. Even though the town was just a few blocks away or something, they wouldn't let us in there. They didn't want us to get soft-hearted or something, I guess, yeah. so. So was it difficult to join another, a whole other division? Was that difficult? Were, yeah. Or were people, did the guys welcome you, or? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, there was, your you were, you were sent. Not to the whole division, you know. Hmm. You only were I was sent to what they call a company. Company, yeah, yeah. See, which is sixty men, I think, as a company. So that's uh, that's where you were sent to. Yeah. But because the division was spread all over, you know, in that area, in that Thienville area, area, and uh, and that's that. It was that point that I knew I was in the, I was in war with those shells and everything that Germans were sending over. So, so we stayed there I don't know for a week or two when we were told that we were moving out to to. Uh, try and capture a German town called Metz. And uh, 
one night, one night, the sergeant came, okay, everybody up, we're moving, we're moving out. So I got my machine gun with me all the time because I carried that son of a gun all the way. And uh, whereas the uh, assistant machine gunner carried a tripod on his shoulder so that the, the two of us were inseparable. And uh, so, but on this particular uh, route, they, they, they uh, allowed us to uh, ride on the jeep that belonged to the to our, our squad, you know. So it was, this was in the dead of night, and we're, I'm riding. Hell, I figured, I figured the guy in the staff sergeant said, "Come on, you, you and I can ride on top of the on top of the jeep. We won't have to walk." I figured, why not? Who wants to walk? So I, he and I, plopped ourselves on top of the jeep, but it was filled up with so much uh, equipment that you had very little to hold on to. And as we were going under night, no lights or anything except a little little pinhole that you, from the uh, another jeep or so ahead of you or a truck. And this jeep driver as we were riding, both the sergeant, staff sergeant and myself, on top of this jeep, we were just holding on for dear life because it was so full of stuff. And uh, as we were riding along, there was this, what we call a six by six, a truck, coming towards us. And he, he, all, he was whole hogging most of the road and the jeep driver made a, a sudden jerk on the wheel. Well, let's get two guys on top of this jeep, nothing to hold them. So, threw us right off the jeep. So all I remember for a while was my helmet flying off and uh, my head bouncing against the, against the pavement of the street. Oh. So I had lacerations all over the side of my head. The medic came right over, you know, and started taping up my head and everything. And before I knew it, they had me at a what well you probably call a mash, mash outfit. That's a, a, a hospital more or less for injured guys that need. The this shot that takes care of these all the injured the first they get first crack at them you know try to stabilize them and stuff like that so I was bleeding from the head and they patched me up and took me to the smash outfit and I remember the first thing the doctor after he, they put me in a operating room they. He looked in my ears, and uh, he says, oh, no blood. He says, you're okay. 
because if I had a concussion, I would have had blood in my ears, see? And then I would have been in, probably in La La Land, I don't know. But for two weeks, they put me in a, hospital, in a big, large tent that held, I don't know, about 30 guys or so, all injuries, you know, there. Until I healed enough that I could put on a helmet and uh, then they shipped me back out to the outfit, you can see. So I was about two weeks in there while I healed and after I healed, they say, okay, your your honeymoon is over. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had our we had our meals brought to us, you know, yeah. by by guys and the nurses were taking care of us. So, so it was good while it lasted. <laughs> and then then that's when hell broke loose after that. So and from there we uh, let's see. Oh yeah, that's weird. They assigned the Fourth Armored Division as our spearhead. They would poke ahead in front of us, and at times we would just—we always followed them. But at times they would speed ahead, and we would just do a, the mop-up work, so to speak. Those that they passed by, German soldiers, you know, that were. Uh, defending their country, you know, like any other GI. They, uh, we would capture them and and uh, as prisoners and just without uh, escorting them, we just chase them out to the back, you know, to tell them just just going backwards. So, so that's when I first got my first taste of of combat, <laughs> so to speak. And it was just go, go, go after that. Let's see, where else? Any memorable? No, we just pull out ahead until, uh, like I said, as, as, uh, after it, I, I missed the Battle of Metz, that town, big town. So, uh, when I got back to the unit, we were all, already on the, uh, our unit, our, our division was already at the German front lines. So I just joined them, and from then on, it was uh, be smart and don't be a don't be a hero. By that, I, by that I meant, you know, take any unnecessary chances. But most of the time we were chasing the Germans, so we never had any big problems, luckily. But those were the standard instructions, you know. Be smart, just. So for that, for being smart, because, uh, I was with the same same guys from 
that that point on, after I got injured, all the way until the end of the war. Of course, uh, in between there was the Battle of the Bulge, and it was. Uh, I I remember one one night the. Uh, Sergeant came around poking all of us guys, okay guys, mount up, we're leaving. Where are we going? I said to the kid that Sergeant says, we're leaving, that's all. So they put us on trucks, a whole regiment, and drove us 200 miles north. No, it was about 150 miles north to the bulge that was already moving into Germany to Czechoslovakia. And so so they dumped us off of there in the dead of, dead of night, snowy, the roads were muddy, and uh, they dumped us off and and we started to advance towards the, towards the bulge. But one of the big uh, casualties uh, of the war during that, during that time, where there was snow and rain and your shoes were wet all the time, The Army gave you two pair of woolen socks because naturally the shoes got the wet and everything. The Army gave you two pairs of socks. One pair you wore and the other pair you put it around your stomach to keep it dry because at the end of the day you took that dry sock and took that wet one and put it back in there. Thereby, you had dry socks all the time, and uh, we went to the, the Battle of the Bulge and start poking a hole, and eventually we uh, pushed the Germans back into their own country. But it took uh, it took several. Almost a whole month before we did that, because the Germans were really, you know, resistant because that was their last stand. After that, they knew that if they lost this battle, they would have, uh, they're, they're finished, and they just fought ferociously. But luckily, at the end of the, we were, we moved on all the way after the, after the bulge. The bulge, we just kept pushing the Germans back, back, back. We had the Fourth Armored Division that did the uh, was what we call our spirit. So all we did was just follow them as they went, and uh, and we uh, pushed pushed them all the way back. To, pushed the Germans all the way back to the Rhine River. <clears throat> when we got to the Rhine River, was uh, uh, 
we uh, ended up in a town called Mines. The uh, a very nice town, good wine, lots of wine, hmm. and we just loaded up our jeeps with it. <laughs> any unnecessary equipment off the jeep, off the cases of wine on our jeep for future. So, so we, from there we uh, traveled to a crossing point, but by that time, but but crossing the Rhine River, but by that time with the uh, first arm, first uh, armored division already crossed. No, the hundred first airborne were the uh, first to land on the German side of the uh, Rhine River and uh, get a foothold or so that a bridge, pontoon bridge could be built by the engineers across the Rhine River. And, and what, so that once, once that was built, then uh, our unit then was uh, trucked up to that point and we, uh, we walked across the Rhine River, and uh, and once we got to the other side, it was just push, 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 you know, push the Germans back, even though they had, they fought like hell. But uh, finally, they it was uh, oh, I think it was oh, and it was coming pretty close to me, me why. May of 1944, it was at the, we pushed up all the way to the uh, Czech border. And that, that's about the time in about May 5th or so is when the war ended. So uh, when we got to that point, the it wasn't normal before a uh, Russian troop, a tank troop, came up the Czechoslovakia and met us at that point. So out came the wine and <laughs> celebrated because the end of the war was over, you know, more or less. Yeah. And that very same day after uh, we were more or less they, the sergeant told us, find any place that you that you can sleep, you know, in the town. So I, I found a Sudetenland, you know, people, wife, and uh, they had a little boy. And uh, so I said, well, I think I'm going to fire a couple of rounds into the water. When you fire a round into the water, you stun them little little minnows, you know? So I fired plenty of rounds to get, get enough for, I uh, gathered all the minnows up and gave it to a little boy and, uh, and he took it to his mother and I, 
because they're going to get old, some uh, old lard or whatever, you know, and give it to his mother, and she fried those minnows up real nice, and I had a good meal out of that, you know. Hey, everybody, it's Nick again. Uh, thank you. That was part one of Walter Guzzi's podcast. As a reminder, um, we've got two more episodes featuring Walter Guzzi coming up. So uh, come back next week. I will have part two. The week after, I'll have part three. And uh, look look forward to that. So uh, thank you for listening, and uh, see you next week. <laughs>